Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Ray Finkel. Laces out, Dan. Let's dim the lights and kick off the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Norio. And you may find yourself influencing someone else's dreams with Norio. Little talking heads uh, reference there, Todd. Just uh, in case you didn't catch it. Um, I got it. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. I like pointing out the joke sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, sometimes you got you feel like you have to just because you're so proud of yourself. Right. You know. Oh, welcome everybody to the pestle. I am Wes, and I am Todd, and we're filmmakers. I've been writing and directing for on and off for ten years now. And Todd's full time producer. He's been producing on and off for ten years now, um, as well as uh, doing music since uh, I don't know, probably your first birthday party. Um, and we use all of that kind of stuff to analyze and look at films. We're running a little behind today, and so I think we can dive right in. What good time are we having today, Todd? Today we're having a bad time at oh. the El Royale. Oh, you like that? Uh, yeah, no, today's film is Bad Times at the El Royale. If you haven't seen this film, please pause the episode, go watch it. We're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff. More than normal, probably. And so we'll look at some of the cinematography. There's an unmotivated light here that I thought was interesting, as well as the motivated coverage of a different scene. And then, of course, we'll look a little into the story and writing, uh, maybe discuss honoring the dead, true piety or something. I don't know. We'll 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 dive in and see what that's what's there. Uh, and we'll also have a special guest today, uh, Hamish Purdy, who was the set decorator on Bad Times at the El Royale. So we'll see what he has to say, if he's got any fun stories and also hear about life as a set deck um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. In 1969, four strangers check in at the El Royale Hotel, and some of them are not who they appear to be. Written and directed by Drew Goddard, cinematography by Seamus McGarvey, featuring Jeff Bridges as Father Flynn, Cynthia Arrivo uh, as Darlene Sweet, Dakota Johnson as Emily Summerspring, Kaylee Spaney as Rose Summerspring, Chris Hemsworth as Billy Lee, Lewis Pullman as Miles the Desk Clerk, and John Hamm as Laramie. The El Royale is a bi-state establishment. You have the option to stay in either the great state of California or the great state of Nevada. Warmth and sunshine to the west or hope and opportunity to the east. What would you prefer? So, yeah, very quick <laughs> soundbite this week. Um... I'm very curious. I haven't seen this since it came out. And so it was interesting kind of revisiting uh, for the first time in whatever, five plus years and seeing how my memory holds up to it. I assume you missed it the first time around. Um, it was one of those films that had a lot of PR behind it, a lot of marketing, but I didn't know a lot of people who went and checked it out, even though when I saw it, it was a packed out crowd, um, but I probably saw it opening weekend. And so I'm curious one, like how you feel about it, what you took away from it. Um, highs and lows of bad times at the El Royale. No, I, I saw it. I think, well, actually maybe I didn't see it in theaters, but I have seen it before. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting because you have no idea. It's one of those, you know, clue movies where, mm. you know, we're learning about each character a little by little. And 
And I, I, I like those. I like not knowing stuff and seeing how people act. And one of the things that I took away from the film was, was that not everybody, you don't know everybody's motivations, right? I mean, the best example that I could see, well, there's, there's tons in this film, but the, my favorite example was of um, Jeff Bridges' character when he's about to drug, uh, what's her name? Um, Darlene, yeah. Yeah, Darlene. When he was about to drug her, uh, and then she breaks a bottle over his head. Up until then, I mean, well, first, at first you think there's something up with this guy. And then, well, first you think Jeff Bridges is a priest? No way. Um, <laughs> and then you think, oh, there's something up with this guy. But then he gives the story of his him not remembering things. Mm. Which, by the way, <laughs> what a performance. His monologue. Yeah, I'm glad you I have you notes agree. on that, by the way, actually. We are going to oh. dive into that. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. So and then so then you start thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'll buy into this. But then you see him, he's about to drug her. And uh, happily, she smashes a, that b bottle over his head because you're thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what is about to happen? This is not going to this is going to take a weird turn. <laughs> so that that kind of tells you, well, you've you kind of already know because John Hamm's character mm. starts tearing the room apart and everything. So you know that people are not what they seem that makes me think about that in real life of, of like, okay, well, you know, people do things and it's easy to judge them, but we don't really know what they've been through. I mean, you know, the, the other perfect example of that is, is miles. He's a drug addict. He says he's done things. We don't know what that is. And then we happily, like, I'm, I'm really happy we get the flashback of him at war because then we can kind of get this small glimpse of a little bit of what he's talking about. You know, when he says, I've killed a lot of people, you know, we don't know what that means. If he's just a desk clerk, that could mean something honestly worse in some ways than doing it at war. At war, you know, that's what happens. It's war. In real life, if you're a desk clerk, it's not what happens. So <laughs> you got to kind of go out of your way. Um, so, yeah, I, I really one the other big thing. And I'm, I'm glad we're talking to Hamish today because, my God, the set. Yes, dressing that's exactly fan, why i wanted to cover this <laughs> fan freaking tastic i wanted to be there i just found myself every time they were in especially in the uh the main office area it's just so beautiful it's like if 19 you know 60s had a baby with the 2000s almost if, if somebody from the 2000s decided i'm gonna build this in a way that is more efficient than they would have in the sixties and awesome, more awesome. That's what that looks like in, in the best possible way. Yeah. So I love all the twists and the turns. I thought the story was interesting. You never knew where it was going. It was kind of reminded me a little bit of like burn after reading style kind of thing, or, or uh, it, it was just, I just didn't know where it was going. I didn't have any answers. Yeah. Uh, I was clueless. And I, I kind of like that in, in films, you know, so. Yeah, it's beautiful. Nice. Yeah, I think same. I think my first viewing was a lot kinder than like my second and third viewing. My first viewing, it was really fun to just see what's happening now. Yeah, Father Flynn turning out to be like a bank robber, um, spending time in jail. Uh, it was really fun to see him. It's really, it's a really nice feeling as a viewer to get pushed and pulled around with a character and along with the story, like to think it's going one direction, then have it pivot 
and then think, oh, no, I don't like this direction and then have it pivot again. It's like, oh, OK, this feels better. Um, and we get that specifically with Father Flynn because we want to like him because it's Jeff Bridges, probably no small part. But also we don't like to see like priests uh, turn out to be terrible people like we have enough of that in real life. We don't want to take part in those stories on on screen, I think. Um, and so having him start as this kind of really affable, nice older man. Um, who's trying to be polite to this woman and her having this air of resistance. And then what's really nice about that dynamic is how it's prodded by Laramie, John Hamm's character, right? He, he starts saying, don't you get it priest? She doesn't want to be next to you. She's trying to get away from you. And it sets up this like tension that's false. And it's because of a projection because once you actually start to peel back those layers, you realize, Oh, she was trying to get a different room because she's going to be singing. She's carrying around all that stuff in order to provide padding they never actually spell that out later it's just there for you to understand on a visual level to be like oh she wanted the room far away from him so that she wouldn't bother him but also probably so that she wouldn't get complaints and maybe lose her room um, and so there's this nice layer there for us to discover and not have it hammered home which i really appreciate on a writing level that we we get to engage with the film in that way uh not every film does right they sometimes they just uh, yeah well did you realize and it's like okay yeah, we, fine thank you um i, I was piecing that together <laughs> <laughs> and i think also you're right being able to discover who all these people are why they're there it's really, really rewarding on the first viewing to be thrown into the blender and say, wait, what's happening? Oh, God. On second and third viewing for me, though, it started to be uh, less rewarding just because it feels everything begins to you start to see the seams a little bit more of, oh, everything looks so coincidental. Like, why is so many coincidences happening at the same place on the same night? Why is there this priest trying to dig up cash from 10 years ago. Why is this woman kidnapping a, a sister? Uh, why is this FBI agent now deciding to go and investigate and pull out all this, uh, whatever equipment. Uh, and that's his whole goal, right? Is to recover or get and gather all these microphones and cameras, uh, from, from the space. And those three things are so coincidental that on inspection, it starts to be like, this is one big coincidental night, uh, which is fine. But I think going in that first time, it's so it's very justified just from the standpoint of you never know when you check into a hotel or a motel who you're surrounded with. And so everyone there has their own individual story. And I think it's calling on that experience that most of us have had about, about being surrounded by strangers and playing the game right at the mall or wherever, um, mm -hmm. watching cars go by and saying, I think that person is on his way to confess his love to uh, the girl from high school or whatever. Like we all kind of play that game and sitting in a hotel, I can imagine Drew Goddard uh, saying, man, I would love a story that kind of combines all that and throws it into the blender um, and just what happens, right? And that, what's the craziest way I can do that? That's fine. That's fine. I just kind of get pushed and pulled the more times I watch this into pulling away from the story instead of leaning into it because it there is no cohesion on that level like none that i can pick up at all but again that's fine i i think you know lots of really it's just fun, a story for story's yeah, sake yeah absolutely yeah. uh and that's okay too sure yeah i think to your point though the uh set decoration i i can't quite tell how much of this was built 
on a studio lot and how much was a location, which is amazing. Like all the rooms are clearly in some, some lot somewhere. Um, that's, you know, a, a sound lot, uh, so that you can build it out and to perfection. Um, and of course tear it apart uh, a lot easier to do. And it's just gorgeous that the whole facade, the whole, like you said, the main room is just beautiful and it has so much character and it sets you right in this timeline of being in the late sixties, but having a feeling from like the early sixties to the mid fifties. Uh, it's like, it, so it, it's an interesting thing to have a period piece where the, the place that you're in feels run down from an even earlier period <laughs> and they just nail it. Like it's, it's flawless and beautiful. So yeah, I'm excited to to pick his brain about that as well. But going back to your point about uh, uh, Jeff Bridges's monologue um, or yeah, that whole dialogue, that performance, I love it. His whole confession about his memory being a medical issue and he's doing so much there. His embarrassment, right? Being reflected in his inability to make eye contact. He's a little jittery, but it's such a fine line as an actor because you really have to go there or else you're going to feel the performance of it. You have to really be engaged with your scene partner, with your past. And I'm, I'm curious, I don't know his uh, acting style, if he even has one, like a, a school of thought. It feels very method to me because of how in it he is. You can see his eyes going into attempting a memory um, while he's coming back to her, you know, Darlene, played by Cynthia Erivo. And it's just so good. And it contrasts really nicely with her. Because she is calmly looking at him directly in the eye and just being there with him. And and for her, I can only imagine getting to do a scene like that with Jeff Bridges. Has to be a dream come true. But she's giving him so much too. She's giving him a lot just by being a rock. By being a steady source. So that every time he looks at her, it is embarrassing. Because of how certain she is of herself. And how she's kind of needling him with her eyes to want to just completely go back away. Like, I can't handle that level of intensity right now. Um, and so she's giving him a lot as much as uh, he's giving her. And so that's a really great combination of actors coming together to really tell a story. Because in that moment, I completely believe Father Flynn is telling the truth. Up to that moment, I definitely have a sketchy eye on him. But in that moment, it's a weird thing to suddenly be looking at someone you know is a liar and think, oh, they're being honest right now. It's so vulnerable. It's beautiful, man. My God. <laughs> yeah, and she, um, I mean, she's my, other than Miles, because I love Miles in this film. Yes. Um, other than other than him, uh, she's, well, she is my favorite character in this whole film. Like She's unbelievable actor. And I mean, her singing, I heard you playing it before we were going on. I can just listen to that all day. <laughs> she is incredible whatever if if and it's, it's obvious she's singing that yeah. it's not 80 yard like that's her singing uh you don't i don't have to look that up um uh but just like if it doesn't work if acting doesn't work out for her which obviously it does but if it doesn't she should be a singer because she's fantastic unreal yeah. unreal how good she is i will say i think this movie would have played better for me uh if if I can nitpick here, um, yeah. which is, I guess that's the point. <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, I probably would have liked this a lot more with about 20 to 30 minutes shaved off. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it went to two twenty or something. Yeah. And I was like, 
I was, I was think, I remember thinking about the two hour mark. How much longer? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think around an hour 45, you have a much stronger, tighter story. Uh, and there's things you could chop off to get you there. I don't think you have to make a lot of sacrifices. Some of it is probably just tightening a scene here and there. And then the, the one thing I probably would lose is part of her backstory is that whole session that she's in as a backup singer. Mm-hmm. I would probably cut that whole thing. I think there's either a way to rewrite it or a way to treat it in post where you're just like, ah, we need to lose it. Uh, for me, it just didn't ring true. Like everything happening and the, the performance was awesome. That that oneer as we're swinging around the room, ex- inspecting everything, and then we finally reveal her right dead center in the frame. Beautiful cinematography. My God. Like, that's really world-class stuff happening in there. Seamus McGarvey is unbelievable. But it's what happens after that. When she gets pulled, when the, when the producer stops everything, and he gives her this, you know, very weird talking to, that just did not ring true rang really hollow for me just because I don't see what benefit he's getting out of doing that. (laughs) Like, uh, I, it just didn't make sense to me. It felt like he was going to make a bigger threat than he's making. It felt very mafia esque, right. Over her being a little sharp and a little flat. Yeah. No, it was weird. I think if you're going to keep that scene, I would rewrite it to be more along the lines of, he dresses her down in front of everyone like stop. And now we're going to uh, slowly push as he's just berating her in front of everyone and then ending it with a threat. What do you want to do? End up in Reno, you know, singing breakfast shows or whatever. Um, and then we can cut to her arriving at the hotel or whatever that next segment is like. I think that has much more emotional punch. It feels truer. I feel like that's probably what a producer in that era is going to do kind of swing his sack around and and show how he's the man this whole everyone leave the room so i can spend waste a bunch of time telling her to not ever be sharp or flat again and it's just i'm not saying that's never happened but it just didn't ring very honest to me um is the way i kind of yeah i mean every i think everybody gets a a little bit of a backstory right um Mm -hmm. and that's but i think that we could She's such a strong character. And I mean, I mean, you know, spoiler, she survives in the end. And so and I get a sense of the other the other thing that I don't like about is that she's just passive. She just takes it. And that doesn't seem like her character. You know, I think her character is not passive, but she's also not aggressive uh, towards any. She wouldn't be aggressive towards him anyway. She would be either. She would be she would beat him with wits. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's how I feel like that would have gone and that would have strengthened her character, would have given more of a, um, even if they were alone, if they kept the idea of them being alone, but uh, she basically wins that whole altercation that develops her character a lot more than her just standing there taking it um, because she doesn't do that in the film. Not once. She is the heroine of this film. I mean, without her, everybody dies. Well, not she, everybody, but yeah, like, I mean, she's in a room where she's tied up, guns pointed at her, and she never loses her cool. Yeah. Not yeah. even when she thinks she's going to die. Right. You know, she's just like, you know, laying on her side. She's <laughs> just taking it. So and then and then she gets a Jeff Bridges character to, to absolve Miles, mm. which is the most beautiful thing. I started crying 
watching it uh, like all because of all three of them too that that was an that's one of the reasons i i actually really love this movie for these little moments of complete honesty like and that rely on multiple people it's not just a monologue here or like a a, a shot there it's the way miles is dying is brutal and i totally believe it yes. um it's not overacted which is so hard to do in something like that the way that that she asks father flynn to absolve him is beautiful and honest and real and re-asks him and the way that that jeff bridges father flynn does it is he just owns it but because of his backstory you know he's really a loving guy like he doesn't want to hurt anybody he does he just you know yes he did some bad things but he's paid his dues right so he can we believe him when he's absolving miles it's just there's just some really beautiful moments and they're all because of her yeah, yeah. like that wouldn't have happened because of her so making that her backflash moment uh, backstory be more of a strong-willed um character would have been better i agree completely agree everything that for me that works about this movie is in the performance and as well as like in the style it has so much style um and to hear more about that let's see if we can get hamish on the line let's do it so everyone i'd love to welcome uh hamish purdy hopefully i'm pronouncing that all properly yep you've recognized his work from projects that we've covered actually like the revenant the cabin in the woods as well as other projects like pachinko on apple tv as well as Bad times at the El Royale. Hamish, buddy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wes. Thanks, Todd. I'm really excited. Um, I'm curious about like the short version. Of course, everyone's got a really interesting backstory. But what got you into set deck? You've been doing it for a while. I, I looked through your credits uh, for the umpteenth yeah. time. And yeah, I, just uh, what what brought you to set decoration? It's uh, I was I was doing a degree in English literature that was okay, but. I wasn't going to open English literature store, so uh, <laughs> I uh, I was always interested in in films. Like Vancouver was sort of growing film industry. Mm -hmm. I live in Vancouver, and uh, whenever there was lights sort of banging through a window, I was like, "What are those guys doing? I want to know what's going on over there." And I always loved film, so I thought I'm going to just get closer and closer. I was a PA, like a production assistant, sort of parking vehicles on a, a small independent movie. And um, I remember I was actually talking to the director the other day, who's still a friend. And uh, I think it was by noon of the first day I joined the art department. I was just like, wow. those are my people. I'm going that way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've always loved the make-believe and, and creation of sort of scenes that you would believe are something that they're not, you know. Mm -hmm. So like even as a little kid, like the idea of a fake rock a styrofoam rock. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. So it kind of grows from there, you know. So do you like? Do you like build the the? No, just sets decorate. You, you decorate the sets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can, so yeah. Can you explain design, that. Designs that art department draws it, construction builds it, paint paints it, but I put in all the stuff. Oh, that's and awesome. who do yeah. you mostly work with? Are you mostly working with your set designer or the production designer? How deep into those production movies? designer and the supervising art director? The three of us. That's the I talk a, a lot with. Uh, usually the directors at the beginning to make sure that, you know, we're going the right direction on stuff. Yeah, just a close relationship with the designer and the and the, usually the supervising art director because they're the nuts and bolts of how it sort of goes together, schedules and stuff. So Nice. And do, yeah. do you build uh, your own reference lookbook or? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. 
Yep. Sometimes I'll do sometimes I'll do like a digital version if it's you know remote, or I'll I'll do like an old school like foam core, stick it up there because yeah, I actually like to use foam core and paper and pictures just to sort of slide stuff around and see if something starts to come together. So depending, I mean, the range is huge, right? You can go from sort of drug dealer crack den to millionaire's <laughs> office or, you know, police station or spaceship or whatever. So that's what, awesome. What's been your favorite film that you've worked on or your, or, okay, let me put, no, let me put it another way. What's your, your, the, the film you're most proud of? Oh, Revenant for sure. For obvious reasons, but it just about killed me and everybody else working on it. <laughs> oh, so the rumors are true. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything you heard, it, it was cold. It was tough. It was caustic. Anyways. But yet, you know, sometimes it's, I think Pachinko was, was particularly difficult. But when, you know, when it was all done, I got home and then it came out and I watched it. I was like, oh, man, that's really good. Like, yeah. I didn't know so much when we were doing it because you're kind of head down in it. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I guess there's pride in all of them. I, you know, I did one called Welcome to Marwin, which is based on a, a, a true story. And Marwin Robert Zemeckis, yeah. yeah, which was fascinating working with him. It wasn't it didn't turn out to be the movie I thought we were making. Mm. But the, the whole time I really enjoyed it. You know, I really, really enjoyed every moment and, and the collaboration. And, then, of course, Robert Zemeckis' team is very well-oiled and good at what they do, you know? So it was really, it was really neat to see that. That's, that process. that's interesting. When you say, this is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. Like when you say it didn't turn out to be the movie that we thought we were making. Well, I thought we were making. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. And so, so that kind of like hammers home a little bit to me that throughout the creation process, it, what all, all we see as moviegoers is a finished film. Yep. And so we think as someone who, you know, I say we, I say someone who doesn't really know the whole process of the of everything might think, oh, that's a thing that was made. But throughout the process, that's a it's, it's just a good reminder that throughout the process, there is a communication that has to happen with everybody at every level who does every little thing, you know, from sound to DP to yep. set deck to acting to directing everybody has to be on the same page and so it could be that somebody on set deck is thinking that we're making one type of movie and then the director thinks we're making something else and it turns out to be the thing that the director is is thinking they're making and yeah, yeah. that's just a very interesting thing that at the end of it it's like oh wait it was that oh yeah I was on set for three months. I didn't think it was going to be <laughs> I didn't that. Think that. Yeah, yeah. Or what happened to all that stuff we did? You know, uh -huh. it's gone. Didn't make the edit. Yeah, I didn't make the cut. But uh, well, also within you know within our our like within our sets, there's there's things where it's like I I hope I'm heading the right direction just on this one set. Hmm. That it's it's what they expect. Like I did um, Percy Jackson the the TV series, which is actually coming out in a couple of days. And, uh, you know, this, the story is like a 13-year-old kid, but he's been away from his apartment for a while. So I kind of dressed his, his bedroom like a 10-year-old's bedroom with a little mm -hmm. bit of 13-year-old in it. But then the showrunner and the director came to me and they said, ah, it just doesn't line up with him. It's, we gotta, we got to make it look like an older 
kid's room and it's like, and I had like an hour and a half <laughs> and I was like, okay, very quickly, let's see, how can I bring this forward three years in the kid's life? Like, what can I introduce, you know? And so I made a quick list and I've got a great team and we just sort of knocked it out. And that was one of the things where I just double checked that we're on the same page on this stuff and we have, a, we have an hour, so let's just see what we can do and just bring it to that exactly what he's looking for or she's looking for. So, yeah. What, what are your go-tos whenever you start hearing this last minute like that? Do you have just a, a car full of props or you start running no, around the rest of the set no, and say, I, what I can have I steal? Really good crew, <laughs> resourceful crew. Um, we have some pretty, in Vancouver, some pretty good prop houses hmm. and they've been around for a while. And myself and my assistant, my buyers, we, we know the inventory pretty well. Recently, Facebook Marketplace has been an insane source for items, like incredible. If you're very specific about, you know, I, I need a maple coffee table that's 17 inches high, you can sort of, you can find it, you know. So it's, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, it's a, it's a great source, actually, we've just discovered. There's a pain of lining up, picking up things from the public and, you know, there's all <laughs> that. Course, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's lots of sources. You can find stuff everywhere. That's cool. How about for bad times? This is a such a specific era. We were just talking about this a minute ago about it's yeah. set in 1969, but it's yep. dilapidated. So it's not 1969. It's like 1958. That's uh, right. In a little yeah. rundown. And so what was There's that a process? A little bit like? of renovation in there. And yeah, yeah, yeah that was, uh, well, yeah, it takes place, I think, over one night. Mm hmm. Yes, one night in 1969. So it's, um, yeah, that, that was a lot of custom, a lot of, fabricating of of everything uh to, you know all our carpets and wallpapers and um that was all custom because of the scale you know we needed so much of it and um you know we built that whole casino including the two wings and the parking lot all on a stage a ninety-three thousand square foot stage what um, yeah it was the only way to do it it was it was um because of the the camera constantly moving and you know the the comings and goings we were like okay we've got to let's just bit we poured asphalt we like put curbs in we did all, all the doors yeah and then you go up the stairs and into the main casino and that was like a one complete thing including the hallway behind the reception to Miles's little room and then the the stairs down to the secret tunnel and yeah so it that was exterior just facade thing. was all fabricated from scratch yeah, I, I, I had no idea. That was the That's one like, I was like, I'm not sure if this was yeah. fully built or if they sourced that. And then re I knew at least the rooms were all soundstage, but that's incredible. And we, and we actually built a bit of the exterior again out on location just for some wide shots where mm. the cars, you know, when she pulls up at the very yep. beginning, you know, through the woods. So we, we comped in some extensions and stuff. But yeah, the whole thing was... Not only that, the stage ceiling was completely plumb terrain at any point. You could just dial up rain because it's a rainy night, right? Yep. So we wanted yep. to be able to dial up rain. And then the water would drain off the driveway. And then there there was a – down at the bottom, there's like a, a pump to pump it all back through. And, yeah, it was quite that, extensive. That's huge wow. being able to do that on a stage because of that reason, right? If, if you want a nice rainy shot – on on location you're you're kind of screwed very quickly yeah. well uh, you're you moving towers all the time yeah. and it's slow and yeah we could we could just you know have a grid and say okay rain here little rain back there with the lights hitting the wall you know but the the there was a hotel you know the hotel with the border down the middle there it was a hotel like that in in nevada called the calneva 
that actually, actually Sinatra owned at one point. It had the, the border through the middle. So we kind of keyed off a bit of that stuff. And then that, that sort of California, Nevada architecture. And yeah, wow. it was really, yeah. How, how hands-on was uh, Drew Goddard in the whole process? Um, or is he pretty hands-off once he lets you go? Does the production designer have a lot of free reign to, to run wild? Yeah, well, Martin West, the designer, actually Martin and I and Drew also did Cabin in the Woods together. He's mm-hmm. the same designer, same director, and and me. Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> so cool. So I, 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 I decorate all of Drew Goddard's movies. <laughs> but um, he, he was he's very interested in everything, you know, and if he has time, he, he's there with us. I have a picture of if you remember in the in the um, main casino, there's these fire bowls and they're hanging from these these yeah. sort of crystal, right? And so and that was actually a big deal because they were subtle in their in the sort of more orangey browns on one side and the purpley silvers on the other. But not only that, because of the fire, I had to use actual glass crystals. I couldn't use plastic crystals. And so at one point, Martin and Drew and I are in Martin's office. Ta- talking about something else, but I've got them threading, <laughs> threading wire with crystals because I've got I've got to get it done for this one stunt, and we need multiples. I said, hey guys, while you're here, just keep stringing on beads. So Drew was into that, and you know, found it quite meditative. How did it feel yeah, to have he, him be your assistant? Wallpaper, every every bit of carpet, like that's all shown, you know, like a client. You know, this is what the walls will be. This is what the bedspread will be like. And and then we did camera tests on a lot of stuff. We we scheduled a couple days of of uh, camera tests with Seamus, the DP. And so we had like, I remember I had a bed that had like ten bedspreads on it, and you just kept peeling them off to show what it looked like in the light, and you know. And they would change the light, you know, dark, day, day, night and stuff like that. So, yeah. Wow. Did you have anything to do with them ripping up the floor? Yeah, yeah. Like that or something? That. Where are we going to cut the carpet and how many multiples of carpet we have to have? And hmm. and then, you know, with the carpenters and the effects guys, they talk about like how 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 the nails, you know, when you pull a nail out, you got to make it look like you're pulling a nail out. But it, it can't be so hard that you can't do it. You know, it's that old thing. It's like luggage. Luggage should have weight in it. Can't be completely empty, you know. Don't we all hate that? Oh yeah, like like when um, John Hamm's character is bringing in his yeah his big. It's yeah. got to like feel. He I I noticed. I don't know why, but I noticed like the the strain on his face lifting yeah. that thing up. It's important. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. actually that was a custom made suitcase with the period mm. uh, vacuum cleaner inside with the reveal of the surveillance equipment underneath that, and of course Drew's involved in all of how that's going to look, you know, we do mock-ups and props department sort of builds all that stuff. So, yeah. And the other thing about this show is, is because like it all had to be kind of ready for day one. You know, normally when you do a movie, you sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm laying track in front, you know, just mm-hmm. making sure there's sets for the shooting crew to get to. And I stay in front of them, but this one, we kind of had to have the whole thing ready. You know, obviously we had, we had some days like the recording studio and the prison, and um, there was a couple other locations that we, we we did elsewhere, but most of it was all on stage. And then, you know, we can't be sort of still building the the, the um, honeymoon suite while they're shooting, you know, otherwise you're just, it doesn't work. So it all had to be ready at the same time. So, wow. yeah. 
you mentioned the stunt uh, with the chandelier a minute ago. Um, what's that process like for you building out and making sure it, it's going to work with uh, the stunt team as well as the lighting? I mean, there's a lot that goes into, I assume. Designing yeah. It which uh, Kaylee's out. jumping on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, there was a couple things that happened there. One was find a chandelier that's big enough to fill the space. That was a bit hard to find one that was sort of periodless, you know, sort of traditional looking and then getting that, rigged with inside a a heavier cable that would normally hang from. And then we'd set it up on another stage for them to practice. But then the other thing we had to do was there's a scene where she's in the, I think it's out of focus in the background. She's sort of making a stack of chairs to get up to. So not only we, she was busy. So we had to find a stunt person, her size to help us figure out like, is it a stool and two chairs and then two stools or like, how do we make the staircase? And it has to be stuff that we've established. It can't be some magic chair that, sh- you know, or step ladder that showed from off camera. So we, I remember making that sort of, um, that sort of uh, sculpture, if you will, of the thing that she runs up and jumps off. And then of course we build it and then they have to sort of tag it all together. So it doesn't fall apart when she actually runs off. Yeah. And then I think that thing falls later on. Yeah, it falls on the ground later on during the fire. Yeah. Did she yeah. actually get to do some of the jumping and swinging? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a oh. like a wire and yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. As an yeah. actor, it's, that's got to be She was a neat. That was a, I really liked her character. I really yeah. it's a lot not a lot of words, but like you knew what was going on and then they do the little stuff on the beach where it's like, yeah, yeah that's how she got suckered in. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious if you have any tips or practical advice um, for filmmakers out there working with the art department or selecting a good team, what are the things that you prefer that really help you do the best work? Well, getting enough prep. Sometimes mm-hmm. producers or production managers will say, oh, you know, you can start three weeks before we start shooting. It's like you're, you're very limited in what you can pull off. <laughs> so if you have enough prep, period, like 60s or even going back to the 1800s, there's lots of research. You want to get really up to speed on what's right for the day. And then really get into that script and start grinding it in the pestle. Yeah, in the mortar <laughs> pestle. You got to pull it all apart, right? And understand everything, and and also how long they're going to be there. You know, if if they're going to be in there for seven pages, you know they're going to shoot the hell out of it. So wow. everything's got to be perfect. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. And then um, what else? You know, concept illustrations usually drift down through the through the production designer. You know, that have been sort of approved by the director or the or the production company. So we want to make sure that what they approve is sort of your target. You're heading in that direction. Obviously you can give them more than that and extra things that can't be shown in an illustration, but it sort of sets the tone. Um, and um, yeah, reference photographs and just sort of, we'll look at hundreds of photographs of casinos from the sixties. And there may be one little thing that we want to pick out in that photograph that we want to try and replicate or an idea. Like I, Although I don't think we saw it in the movie, the idea that they lost their gaming license, I thought it would be interesting to have over where the cashier uh, wickets are. I thought it'd be great to have a whole bunch of like empty cash boxes, you know, like they got all pulled out of the all pulled out of the slot machines and they're dumped and they're just stacked. And I just went and got used arcade machine cash boxes. Because a cash box, you know, there's like a long cylinder. It's going to be fine, right? It's going to have that sort of element. And I just managed to find, like, you know, 50 of them. And we just put them in a giant stack. So when you look over there, it's like, 
oh yeah, I see what's going on. They're no longer running. They've lost their license. The cash is gone. So that's not even, we're not trying to break in over there. That's not where the money is sort of thing. So yeah, it was kind of a fun, easy, easy to do. Right. Once you come up with the idea, once you come up with the idea, and that's the cool thing that I really love about working with professionals, because a lot of people might just show up and say, okay, how can I fill up the space? What they don't do is analyze the script and say, how can I help further tell the story that's on the page? And that yeah. requires a layer of thought and analysis and care. Like you have to yeah. put your heart into that to come up with those ideas in the first place. Yeah. Well, and also sometimes it's emptying a space, you know, getting mm -hmm. it down to its basics. I just finished this show a couple of weeks ago and we have a, we have a living room um, that's supposed to be like, you know, uh, a normal sort of at home American living room. But there's something off about it because it's not really like he doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't, you know, and it's like, well, how can we sort of he's he's trying to trick people into thinking this is a normal room. But we've got to make it look like it's not quite right. Nobody really lives here. So there's certain things we can do to, to do that. If we just let that percolate in your head for a while, you can come up with ideas. Right. So it's like, OK, it's going to look like a living room, but we don't want to actually believe that someone lives here. It's just sort of playing as, so it's like a, a layer. Yeah, it's kind of fun. What did you come up with? We did things like, uh, we did things like, uh, like a, a sculpture collection on the, uh, you know, in an alcove, but we painted it all the same color. Like it was all acquired at the same time. You know, it didn't have a, a bunch of layer to it. Things like that. Um, yeah. You know, a candy bowl, but the candies are all like, dried and congealed into one lump like no one actually is you know it's there for show i've it, tried to have candy bowls in my house and my children will not allow it so that i, I totally subscribe to that they won't, they won't last no no people are always pulling them out so yeah I, I i subscribe to that for sure that's brilliant yeah i think just things like that just uh i, I guess it's the minimalism too when you're trying mm. to create because because the opposite is is a place uh, where people have been living and not leaving, then you get an incredible buildup of dishes, depending on the character. But, you know, there's that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot can be said for character in a room, you know, or or trick you into thinking something. <laughs> Are you constantly analyzing people's houses when you visit? Like, oh, that's interesting. Brief <laughs> taking pictures, <laughs> sneaking like little shots. Yeah. If Hamish comes over the, for the first five minutes, he is analyzing you. Yeah. Yeah, just by the way. Did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's um, it's it's interesting. I, I on Miami Vice, I uh, I got to go to Miami for about a week of prep before I headed off to the South America and stuff like that. And there was um, there was some Michael Mann, of course, is the king of sort of research and accuracy oh, yeah. and mm. access to stuff. So he obviously, from his years of the television show had a lot of contact with the Miami police department. So we had access to photographs of real drug dealers houses after they got busted. And I just like the real thing, right? So I'm just <laughs> pouring through these pictures for the whole day. Like I've just take, and there's certain things you start to see, like you start to see certain things repeat. It's like, well, for sure we got to have this and we got to have that, like uh, a very expensive gaming tv stereo system but not on any furniture just sort of on the floor up against the wall right like that sort of stuff and and uh coffee tables covered with phones 
and drugs and money. Like I did see that lots of it because they're always on the phone and they're making, you know, different phone calls. And I'm just looking through this, like, this is all real. This is like, it's verifying like what we're about to do. So it's wow. great when you can get good research, you know, how was, uh, working with man? I've worked with his AD before, uh, Waxman. He's a, Black, a, a Waxman. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he's intense. Um, I'm curious if that carries through the rest of the production or not. Yep. Yeah. He's good. He's, uh, a real writer, Michael Mann. Mm. He's a re he write uh, in those days. I was here in Vancouver during prep, and like every day, a FedEx truck would show up with new pages, like Second Salmon, Third Green, like oh you know God. the colored pages when you <laughs> yeah. get the script revisions. Yeah. I guess now they would email all that out, but <laughs> they were they he would they would send because he would constantly be rewriting scenes dialogue little thing just always massaging it and uh thankfully no big set changes mm -hmm. but it it was uh and yeah he was he was a little like in your retu a bit intimidating so basically you just you really focus on your job and make sure that you're not going to be caught out you know um but i i really enjoyed it and i know that one of the first sets i gave him he was impressed so i was like oh Good. I know what I'm doing. So we can continue. <laughs> That's a, that leads me to a good question of uh, what, what is it when you help me out here, Wes, what's the term when you feel like you don't. Oh, like you're, imposter you're, syndrome. Thank you. Uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. So, so, so you've, you've worked with some of the biggest directors, Christopher Nolan. What? In your read to. Yeah. He worked yeah, on like, insomnia. Like <laughs> at some, at some point, do you walk into a room and you think, and you think, it doesn't matter who's in this room. I know what I'm doing. Or when you start, do you always have that feeling? Like what? when I start a movie, I always have the feeling that like, oh my God, can I do this? Sometimes it could be, can I do this on budget, you know, mm -hmm. and still, and still maintain a, a good look. But then, yeah, then I know if I've really, really done my research and I've really sort of know that I am in line with what they're expecting, I can, I can be quite excited that they're about to walk into the set for the first time, knowing they're going to go, oh, right on, because I've just, I'll go all the way to get that. I mean, one is pride in your work, but also you mm -hmm. kind of want to be done and move to the next set, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to be, could you think you can get me a plant? What about a thing? What if, you know, and I don't want to be caught in the black hole of the shooting crew when I'm trying to get in front to the next thing. So gotcha. yeah, it's um, also during tech surveys and stuff, just really keeping your ears open. You know, mm. there could be little discussions or somebody could be mentioning something. Oh, that's a good idea. And it's like, Oh, wait a minute. That might affect what we're doing. So you really want to always be listening. And tech surveys can notoriously be untechnical. And uh, I always try and keep my ear to the, dp and the ad you know like ad could be saying oh we we may shoot this out of order this day i'll, I'll get even just that thought it's like i better keep that in my head if they may shoot this out of order we want to be in here the day before we want to you know we don't want to rely on the shooting schedule if they if it if it feels like it's not quite solid let's let's stay in front of them so yeah wow Amazing. um any other fun tidbits i mean you like i said you worked on insomnia uh, you gave us a little Michael Mann cabin revenant. Um, yeah. Any any anecdotes that that pop out? Insomnia. Chris working with a young Chris Nolan was interesting uh, and fascinating. Obviously, I could see right there that this guy knows what he's doing. And uh, watching Al Pacino work that was interesting because he clearly has done it before. <laughs> like you just watch <laughs> him just do take after take with props in different spots, you know, hitting their marks and, all, and it's just like wow, this guy is. 
yeah, it's that was pretty cool. I don't know. There's there's so there's yeah. whole, so many years of it. Uh, I, I got to work on the one of the Mission Impossible movies, which is fun. We we the the what was it called Ghost Protocol, the Burj Khalifa one. So we did the interiors of the uh, of the Burj on stage here. Watching Tom Cruise work was interesting because again, someone who's done it before knows exactly how it goes together, you know. Uh, and um, Pachinko was fascinating. So when you finish when you finish a project, yeah, do you? Uh, we talk about this a lot about you know you pour yourself into a project and then when it's done you got to kind of let it go. Yeah. Right? Do you ever have a feeling of like like oh you know when it's over? Or are you always excited to get to the next thing or? Yeah, yeah, I guess you I guess you anticipate the sort of the arc as it, you know, as it comes to an end. Yeah, some of them you just don't want to leave the people that you're working with because it's just been such a good, a good thing. And what happens is we'll I'll finish and then the shooting crew will, will be done and they'll they'll wrap and then we'll wrap our stuff and then sort of close out our accounts and all that sort of stuff and either go on to another show or go home and wait for the call. But it won't be for another 6 months to a year, a year and a half before that which I just worked on comes out and I've got nothing to do with post-production unless there's reshoots. So it's sort of gone from my head, you know, and then you get excited again. It's like, Oh, like Percy, we finished last February and it's going to come out the day after tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, I wonder what I'm going to get to see it again, all again from new eyes now, you know, all polished. So I, I'm, I, I'm good to let go of shows when they're done. I do. I mean, that's the, one of my biggest, joys about the business is the, is the project nature of it. The fact that it has a beginning, a middle and a, com a real end, like it's over. We're You're not getting paid anymore. It's done. You don't owe anybody your time. And it can be stressful, obviously, if you don't have another one lined up, but, but so far it's been good. So I've always yeah. loved, and it's just, I think we can end where we started, which is you said you went to school and got a, a degree in like English literature. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the coolest things about working on sets is you walk on set and you see all these roughnecks that are like picking up, you know, 300 pound lights uh, and, and combo stands and, you know, rigging condors and um, you, you meet them at crafty um, and you expect someone who's going to like spit and like talk crude. And suddenly they're, they're talking about Dostoevsky, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, like the level of intelligence that runs around on, on production sets. I don't think people really understand that uh, there's all artists there. Like everyone Absolutely. loves Absolutely. art. They're in it. Uh, and so I would love to hear like your experience about what, what working with, you know, some of these crew members is like, as well as like your favorite yeah. book. I mean, just painters, painters, people, if people know how good movie painters were, it's astonishing how often you have to go up and knock on something to make sure it's fake or, you know, real sort of thing, like rocks and stones and steel and the the, the amount. And then also how we're going to, like, if they've storyboarded a shot, we'll brainstorm with effects and visual effects, you know, special effects and visual effects and stunts and camera. How are we going to pull this off so that it looks like, what we storyboarded, but we were limited by, you know, certain there's actors here and I, all that sort of creative process. How are we going to solve that stuff? And it could be big or small, super fun, super fun because everybody's got great ideas from, well, the last time we threw a car off a building, you know, <laughs> really? Oh yeah. I've done it 10 times, you know, <laughs> like, and every time we find this is the right thing to do. And so you're, you're drawing on experience and, and uh, of course also within 
you know, maybe the sound guys also makes independent films for himself. You know, there's you never know what kind of background people have. So usually they're interested in what they're doing because the hours, as you guys know, are pretty pretty bad. So if you don't like it, you shouldn't be doing it. You know. Yeah. So. A hundred percent. And your favorite book? What's your favorite book? English lit major. Mm, mm. Uh, well, boy, favorite. Yeah, I don't even have a favorite movie. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just too many. Uh, I like the Patrick O'Brien books. The, the well, which the Master and Commander, which you guys did a. Uh, those are those are good escapist stuff. But I'll read political books as well. Yeah. And, but I like I like those escapist sort of adventure stories and yeah. Very yeah, good. Commander is so good. I don't know why they didn't make more of those. I know. I know. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> um, I did have one, one more question, which is um, for anybody who might be listening that, that is interested in, in set decoration or, or just getting into the business in general, like what advice would you give them on either getting started or if they're interested, like where to, are there agencies? Do they just find sets to walk on? You know, like how do, how do you get started in that game? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm obviously asked all the time, you know, friend, you know, my son wants to get into it. So there's, and also when I got into it, it's different. So I used to like send out resumes and there was no cell phones and emails like that. So there was, there was a lot of sort of uh, walking on the pavement to get it done. But yeah, I guess it's student films. Obviously, you know, you can take some film courses and you know when you're taking when you're going to film school or, or taking just a, a film course at a community college or university there's going to be students not only doing their project for for the school but they probably have some other project they want to do and i always found that you know the if you just be there to help just say look i can be there to help i can be an extra hand then you're around people that are also interested in the same sort of thing as a shoot comes to a finish, everybody's always talking about what you're going to do next. That's always the case, right? So what are you going to do next? So there's a certain momentum with that. Oh, we could really use your help on this other thing. We got to do, you know, two nights in the forest. And the... I'm in. I'm. I'm, I'm totally. In. So showing an interest and just being exposed to the people that are also doing that sort of stuff, and it it, it will tend to build. The, there's the big unions that will, you know, that's a great entry and, and there's, there's, there's ways to do that. You, you sort of get a little bit of experience, you put your application in and, and you can join that way. And that's, that's going to help you eventually. But um, yeah, just working, you know, all of a sudden you'll be working on a little student film and then somebody will say, Hey, we're all going to go work on this car commercial and we need more bodies. And next thing you know, you've met the producer on the car commercial. It says, we're about to do four more car commercials. Are you available? Because you seem to be interested and you seem to be handy. And so it really just happens like that. It's a, it's a, there's a momentum to it, you know. And like, also, you could do that and decide, I hate this. Like, these guys are nuts, <laughs> you know. And they have every right to believe that because it is a bit nuts. So. Yeah. You know, you, you exposing yourself just by being around, you know, and uh, it could start on a small student film and then, you know, another independent thing or a little commercial or. Right. Dang. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Dude, thank you so yeah. much for, for coming on. Any final words of wisdom? Keep or going. Something? I like your show. I really do. <laughs> we got one, Wes. We finally we got, got a listener. <laughs> no, it's really great. And you guys, the way you really dig down into it, it's it's like uh, what was the other one I listened to the other day? The No Country for Old Men, oh, just man. the the 
you're right about all the decisions that those guys made and, and, uh, and just the thought that goes into their filmmaking. And it's like, yeah, they really do think about that stuff. And like, what was it? The lack of music and, mm. and using music when it was important, like, or I didn't watch your Oppenheimer one, but I thought that was too much music, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyways. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. I was, I, at one point I was like, can we just turn the music down for a second? <laughs> yeah. So dramatic every moment. But, yeah. But um, yeah. yeah. Anyways, yeah. No, no, no final points. I just, I just really uh, enjoyed your guys's podcast, and right. and I only wanted to send you a note, but you lassoed <laughs> me into talking about bad times. That's so. right. That's my man. Yeah. That's Wes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always go. promoting. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, no, thank you so great. much, man. This was a real genuine pleasure, and super excited uh i'll i'll keep an eye on what you got going on and i might uh last yeah this next one, one heretic is gonna be really cool yeah this is another yeah. drew goddard film yeah no it's not goddard it's um the two guys the two writers of uh a quiet place oh right um yeah Brian, yeah, yeah, God, yeah. yeah escaping and me, it, but... we did we did we just did four days on location and 32 days on stage and it was basically oh three characters whoa it was the whole thing in 30 in 36 days yep yep wow yeah wait, wait so what is this it's it's called heretic it's an a24 sort of thriller horror type of you know but very cerebral and incredible amount of dialogue and is it going to be streaming or is it out on in the theater uh it will Cage be wrapped, probably yeah. theatrically released yeah probably. Cool. good yeah. holy crap. yeah really cool it was neat to do something like that where it's just basically one house set and then a couple other things but one thing to concentrate and yeah, it was fun. Oh, I, man, like I just want to talk like small. Yeah. I just want to talk to you about movies. Like I, I've got so many movies that I want to ask you about. You know, like like from a set di- direction, set a decoration Decorate. point of view. Like yeah. Sunset Limited. Like can we talk about that oh, for a minute? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like just all these. Yeah. Anyway, there's, thank there's, you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to. Do it. You guys call me anytime. Dude, thank you so much, Hamish. Uh, okay. We'll uh, we'll put some links to you if you want to drop me any place where people can find more of your work i'll drop your imdb obviously but if there's yeah, no place there. yeah awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right have a good one bro all right have a great sunday thanks you man. too my you friend too. dude how cool is he <laughs> that is probably one of the coolest people i've ever met oh in my, my life i listen all you other podcasters out there i'm sure y'all are fine <laughs> <laughs> but our guests are the best we our guests kick all the other guests ass i mean seriously it doesn't matter who we bring on they've always killed bro yeah Uh, yeah. i mean we've had sergio hannah this year obviously trent uh hamish like everyone we bring on bro is just an amazing uh and i think that speaks a lot to the kind of people you know we attract as well like just very thoughtful layered people and that's just a to me, that's nothing speaks higher about what we're doing than the people that actually we get to engage with, you know, uh, yeah. and that's just really humbling and very cool. Yeah. Just seeing the questions that he asks himself yes. um, going into his work. I mean, you know, it's it's very specific, I guess, what he what he does. So he's able to do that, but he doesn't have to. There are plenty of people that just want to fill a space with with stuff. But like he said, sometimes it's the absent that you're taking stuff away. And you and I both love that kind of attitude about everything. 100%. Um, Yeah. And this is a great example of his work, but he kept talking. I'm like, you worked on that and you worked on that. He said cabin in the woods. And I was like, oh my God, you you had me. Yeah. (laughs) 
You had me at cabin. <laughs> you had me at cabin. I have a few notes. I'll run right through them. Um, we've definitely pushing the clock here. But in terms of cinematography, uh, there's an unmotivated light whenever uh, Laramie is running around pulling cords out of car trunks, right? Or uh, car hoods um, off of engine blocks. And there's one where he pops a trunk and he goes to pull some cable. Um, and there's this engine light while he's pulling this cable that's not remotely motivated by anything. Uh, it's like this light shooting up through the engine to illuminate what he's doing. And I say that to say that who cares? And it's a thing that it might not always, you might feel a little vulnerable as a, as a artist making a, a thing like that. Cause you want everything to feel as visually cohesive and not jarring as possible. But in this case, it really doesn't matter for a lot of reasons. One, it's a very quick shot, but we need to see what's happening and the angle that they're having to shoot in, you don't want to just keep repeating the same thing that you've seen in other cars. You want to make sure visually it, it looks different and distinct from the other things that you've been watching. And so you need to make it look good, but it's so fast that we don't spend any real amount of time in that space. So we don't need to be overly precious about how motivated the lighting is because it's literally going to be like 36 frames, maybe 48 because he goes in he pulls the cable. And if you're going to make it that fast, let's, really let it breathe in the, in the sense of visually digestible, you know, information. Um, and so they just literally shot, maybe placed a, a glow stick or something like just underneath the frame, um, going through the engine block. Uh, and it's great. And the audience will never notice. They'll be focused on the story aspect of him pulling the cable. Not where's that light coming from? That's, you know, jackasses like me that are just like, wait. And again, that for me was like the second viewing. There wasn't something I noticed on first viewing. Um, it's something that you have to be thinking about to pull away. And my greater point is you can get away with so much whenever you're you're shooting a narrative like this because the people are going to be engaged with the story. No one's going to be thinking about that wide shot didn't have this light that's now clearly lighting up this actor's face. The closer you can get uh, with the camera, the more you can start to cheat these things. Um, and knowing when and where you can cheat is going to give you so much, you know, leeway whenever you're staging your, your, your scenes and, and telling your story. By contrast, there's the introduction of Billy Lee that I think is really interesting because he's being backlit and it's completely motivated, motivated by the story. Now, before I was talking about motivated by a source of light that would be obviously creating this light um, and there's nothing to motivate that light but here this is a story motivation of when we first meet billy lee the first shots of him he's being backlit by the sun and as we're trying to look at him it's completely obstructing our view and rose's view um, with the sun's glare right he's and it speaks to his character being this godlike you know character um, and so doing that gives them this kind of radiance and also uh, shady, right? It's both. It's really interesting to be able to create a sense of shade uh, as well as, as a sense of uh, radiance. And it's all being done through backlighting him. And it's right in line with the way we shoot him uh, at the start, right? The first shot of him is an overhead when we see like the, the water kind of cresting on the sand as well as uh, the footsteps in the sand. And then he enters the frame from the left, right? And he's walking and following those footsteps. And to me, it's very reminiscent of that kind of corny Jesus 
poem that people have in their bathrooms, right? Of uh, When I looked up, uh, there was only one set of footprints and it was because I carried you or whatever. Um, I'm not trying to make fun of it of this corny. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so it's kind of immediately like bringing these thoughts and feelings for me anyway. I remember the first time watching this, I was like, oh, this guy thinks he's God. Before he ever said a word. I immediately knew who this guy was in the story. Um, and then I just kind of waited to see if they were going to flesh that out. And of course it didn't take long before they, they get there. Yeah. So I, I love that kind of idea. And the same thing later, whenever we go into Rose's chapter, the first shot of him again is this overhead. It's a godlike perspective, right? We're looking down as if from God's uh, point of view and it's him in this yellow field of flowers and uh, it's very bright and it's still giving the sun vibes, right? We're looking down at the earth sun's nowhere in sight. And yet you still feel the sun through the flowers and the color uh, choices there. It's a, it's beautiful. It's very spot on in terms of telling your story visually. Yeah. The other thing that I really liked from cinematography standpoint is the coverage in the scene with father Flynn and Darlene. This is after she's bashed his head. Right. And now he's trying to get her to understand who he is and why he did what he did. Oh yeah. Um, or, or, or tried to do what he was going to do um, and failed. <laughs> and to me, this is perfect coverage. Um, it's not overly covered. And that is to say, they don't film it from 30 different angles. And I think that's because it's a very slow scene. So we don't need to create a bunch of energy through lots of cuts. And since we need fewer cuts, we don't need a lot of angles to cut around. Instead, you need to be specific in choosing which angles you're going to use. And so when we're inside the, when the camera is inside the car, they're discussing their relationship, right? What they should do to resolve their situation. And I also love that when we're shooting her, the angles on her, it's including the steering wheel very prominently, which is to say that she's in control. Um, they could have angled her a little bit more and, and framed out the steering wheel a little less in the frame, right? But it gives, it eats up a lot of the frame and that's to reinforce the idea that she's in the driver's seat in their relationship. So it's just this metaphor at, at play. But when the camera is outside, because we do cut so that we're looking through the windshield. And when we do that, it's because they're now referencing the other girls at the hotel, right? The, the sisters who are locked in, they don't know what their deal is. Um, and he's trying to figure out what you know about them. And so to reflect that we're now, the conversation has moved to beyond the car, things that are happening outside. Let's put the camera outside. And it's visually beautiful, right? We're shooting through this wet windshield with rain hitting, and it's just going to look really good. But it's important to save that when the conversation shifts, I think a lot of immature cinematographers and directors would shoot the entire thing through the windshield because it looks good and it's not helping tell your story. Like make sure whenever you're cutting or choosing an angle that it's helping to tell visually as well as narratively what's happening within the the scene in the context of the story. Um, yeah. And so editing wise towards the end, they're at the, the, the gambling table. Uh, what is that? The, the, the roulette and Father Flynn is telling a lie about, yeah, I'm, I don't know where the money came from, right? It's hers. She came with it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's when Billy Lee, played by Chris Hemsworth, says that, did I tell you I hate priests? Do you want to change your story? And now we cut from Flynn. He looks over and we cut to his perspective, which is the kid, Miles, right? And the implication that's being made here through the edit is that he doesn't want to change his story 
because he's thinking about what the kid wants. What does the kid want? The kid wants to feel like his soul is being taken care of before he dies. And so there's a story element that's not being stated here. Instead, it's being left for the, uh, the audience to interpret through the choice of cuts. And by cutting to the kid, we now think about the kid's desires in relation to what the father is having to choose to decide of what he's going to reveal about himself. And he's going to try to stick to his guns because he cares about the kid. It's, it's a beautiful, simple edit. And it's there. It's there to tell the story. I'm so glad you brought that up because these kinds of things that we talk about can seem like for someone who might be listening that wanting to write like a like, you know, a film or something or, and, and wanting to layer in, you know, complexity like this, it might seem like, how the hell would I do that? Like, how, how would I, how would I even start to do that? But really, I think this is a perfect example of just be still and put in the room, um, conf conflicting desires, mm. right? So of your characters, right? This is a perfect example. You've got father, the father who, is not really a priest and everybody knows that except for the kid. He's like the only <laughs> one that doesn't know it. Uh, uh, but we know the motivations of the kid, which is completely different from the motivations of, of the priest, completely different from the motivations of the antagonist. So all of these are just meeting, just, just make them talk to each other just in your head, just make them talk to each other and see what, what rubs can you get? You know, you have this, the kid wanting this, you have the priest you know, um, in trouble, he can get out of it. But if he does, then he dashes the hopes of this kid. And he likes the kid, we like the kid. So don't look at it as as an, as a way as a don't look at it from the point of view of how do I do this? Look at it from just challenge the characters in, in a room in your brain, and then something will probably come out. You know? Yes. And then the the more you work on your story, because it's one thing to write a story. It's another thing to spend six months thinking about it. How do we visually tell this story? This is where all the departments get involved and working with people who care about what they're doing is a night and day difference because yeah, you might have a Hamish that comes in and says, Hey, I've been thinking about your story and here's another way that I can help tell it. The cinematographer is doing the same exact thing. He's coming in and saying, Hey, I've been thinking about this story and, you know, when we, when we do this scene, I want to make sure we get an angle of miles from the perspective of the priest. That's a cinematography decision. And it's also one that's reinforced through the editor. And hopefully this is all stuff that, you know, Drew Goddard is thinking about. But if not, you have reinforcements. You don't need to be thinking about everything all the time whenever you have people around you that are contributing to helping you tell your story. A team makes a huge amount of difference there for sure. Yeah. Um, the last notes are about the story and writing. And I think there's something being said here about Billy Lee versus father Flynn, because to your point, like miles is the only one who doesn't realize that's not really a priest. And there is something interesting about that psychology because he is the only one in the room who needs to believe that he is a priest. And I think we do that a lot to ourselves about, fooling ourselves into the thing that we want to be true, being true in our own minds, right? This is Rose's problem as well. Um, she needs Billy Lee to be what her father wasn't. And yet by doing that, she pulled herself into another exact same situation that she was probably in, in the first place. And so 
there's a, a lot of interesting dynamics that because on the other, the contrast between uh, Rose and Miles is really interesting because there's a lot of shame over what Miles did and he's looking for absolution and Rose might be suffering some other psychological factor of uh, needing a father figure to step up and actually take care of her and being manipulated into that through with Billy uh, and his false promises of deity or, or whatever his deal is. He's kind of this interesting Koresh Manson thing going on. And so, yeah, and between Billy Lee and father Flynn, perhaps there's an analogy being formed here about faking religion or piety or Godhood. Um, and I think maybe to some degree, there's also a, a comparison with California versus Nevada, right? The sunshine of Calavada, uh, California. And what does our guy say? California, right? Warmth and sunshine or to the East Nevada, hope and opportunity. Um, and so there's some kind of comparison here because, we also have Darlene who leaves California for the hope and opportunity being provided in, in Reno. Um, and so there's some life choice decision that I think is trying to provide some cohesion. I just don't think it's quite strong enough for me to pick up. And maybe that's because I'm a dum-dum as it goes. But beyond that, right, neither one, Billy Lee or Father Flint, is what they pretend to be. And they're both capable of offering salvation or redemption. Now, Billy Lee sees himself as a God, right? He gambles with life and manipulates his followers uh, for his own ego. That's clearly all self-serving stuff that's going on there. By contrast, Father Flynn offers salvation to Miles, right? Despite feeling unqualified. And so it to me, I'm as I sit and think about these characters, I, it's asking to me, uh, who is really offering something worthy to humanity, right? Is it the self-righteous cult leader? Or the ex-con who can't remember his own name, which is really interesting because Flynn, therefore, has no ego. He doesn't even know who he is. How can he have an ego? Whereas, you know, the the, the false promises of Billy Lee, clearly he knows who he is. He says his name. And yeah, there's there's a really strong thing that's that's happening between these two characters. Um, and so... I don't know. The The film is also seeming to, to invoke some other aspect of redemption, right? It features some, there's a film that was captured by Miles that he kept because the guy that's in the film was very kind to him. And he's like the only person who's ever been kind to him, uh, which may be true. I don't know how bad desk clerks get at that motels, but uh, probably didn't get better the further back in time you go. Probably. <laughs> and so... It features some famous orator who's now dead, but meant a lot to people, but he's having some kind of sketchy forbidden sex that would ruin his memory, his reputation, etc. And so we get to the end of the film after watching Billy Lee trying to dangle salvation in front of people and make them fight for it, right? Let's have us a tussle. And then you have uh, uh, Father Flynn genuinely trying to give someone salvation, though he has no right quote unquote to it and you can spell that with r-i-t-e you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> and but darlene therefore goes through this whole experience seeing these things and what does she do at the end she gets the film father flynn gives it to her she now has power and she burns it right she keeps alive the memory of the deceased keeps it intact along with their meaning to the greater world and to me She's offering the same thing Flynn did, which is salvation, but not actually to the person on the tape. That person's gone. 
but she's offering it to everyone who remembers him. She's offering something unruined, unblemished uh, for, for the people who got some salvation or redemption from that person. She's allowing them to keep that uh, in, intact. And I don't know that I have the perfect finger on the whole thing, um, but I think there's something being said about all of that. And it's lovely. I just, I think I would have hoped it to be just a bit stronger uh, and the through line and the connections being made. I don't know if that's a line here or there, or maybe some restructuring of the story itself. I don't know, but it it's nice. I think you could look at that character as being either MLK, probably more likely JFK. And yeah. since, you know, you got the FBI involved it, to, that could either go, it could go either way. Like FBI had definitely had some choice things going on with uh, uh, MLK, but I felt like, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I don't know if you had a stronger takeaway or if you picked up on any of that stuff, but uh, feel free to chime yeah. in. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's all stuff that we kind of said before. I did have a question, which is which character in this film do you, is your favorite? I it's hard for me to get away from Jeff Bridges. Like, I think there, what's really cool about this. Every character is their own thing. Yeah. There's no repetition here. And so whenever I see Dakota Johnson being Emily Summer Spring, I'm like, damn, she's strong. Like She has a perspective and you can feel her really caring for her sister. Um, that's a really nice, well-told story. I hate Billy Lee with a burning passion. That's cool. That's good to invoke anything. I really feel torn about Rose because you want more for her, but she doesn't want it for herself. And then by the end, I end up hating her for what she did to Miles. And so that's a beautiful arc to carry me through emotionally. I think I am a little frustrated with how much destruction there is and how little like meaning there seems to be attached to any of it. It, it didn't make sense to me why Miles died or Rose died or why she didn't rise up to to meet her sister um, in a in a more, I don't know, symbiotic way uh yeah there's a lot on the writing side that i'm just like Arr. i love father flynn though <laughs> like there's yeah never yeah yeah i don't know yeah i can see that i i mean i, I for me i think it's miles um uh, mm -hmm. i just i love his character and his acting is fantastic it's just perfect from the moment i first you first meet him he's just so awkward and 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 nervous and you know like uh, I, I don't know. I don't even, I can't even put my finger on all of the, the things that I think that he is, but I just love him as a character. So I kind of, I, I mean, I, I don't like that he dies, but I, I do like that it, it gives uh, father Flynn mm. an outlet to That's be, to be something else where for a moment he's like, he is whatever he's, he's more of what he said that he is this whole movie in that moment, you know, it give it, gave him that. And it gave the strength to, um, like a, a powerful being to, um, Darlene, right. Powerful that's purpose a, there to convince him to do it. You know, yeah. that's a great so. point. I think you're absolutely right. That is the, that does serve a very strong story purpose. Yeah. It so sucks I, though, because I love how badass yeah. he is right before that, where he just like blows people <laughs> away single shot. Cause, cause we see him, we, you know, we see him in his, his backstory where he's, he's just shooting. Right. And he survives, but we don't know how good he is. And then when he's just single shot, he, single headshot on everybody, you're just like, <laughs> Oh, okay. I see what I'm dealing with. And then when he's kind, when yeah. he's kind to, uh, to her and then she 
ends up stabbing him. It's like he let his guard down at one moment because he was unstoppable. There was no one that was going to stop him except his kindness, you know? So true. Uh, Yeah. In that moment, whenever he hands the gun to Father Flynn and then picks up the rifle with his foot, that got me three out of three times. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a cool shot. And it's such a great contrast to the rest of his character, right? He's bumbling behind the counter to, to get out, right? And he's having to fold and swing and it's all kind of just it feels very clunky and then you see him in his element and it's so perfectly reinforced by how he treats that gun as like a a part of him it's just a part of his being um it's another limb and it's so cool <laughs> it just is great yeah <laughs> nice yeah. dude well done um final thoughts no I, I i don't think so i think we've talked through all of it um yeah i'm really uh I, I enjoyed it. Yes, I think yeah. that there are things that could have been better. Um, uh, maybe it could have been shorter, but I thought I thought it looked beautiful. Thought the sec deck was one hundred. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, same. Like it's always easy to to I don't know take a really good movie, and I think it also coming from Cabin in the Woods. It's just the level of expectation just goes through the roof. You set like a genre defining movie um, and like, Oh, keep doing that, please. <laughs> like, okay, well, hold on. Uh, let me just tell a cool story. How about that? Um, yeah. yeah. And successfully done. Nice. What, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? This week I'm going to recommend, uh, well, sorry, I need a minute cause I was handling all of the uh, audio stuff. So I need a minute. Uh, just Copy give me that. a second. I am going to recommend, so I was debating because we have Kaylee Spaney, a very young Kaylee Spaney here, um, playing Rose Summer Spring, and she's so good. Like, to uh, Hamish's point, like, she hardly says a word, but you know her deal. Um, You know who she is and what she's thinking and feeling and how trapped she is. It's her own trapping to some degree, uh, as well as Billy Lee's, but she's so good. So part of me was thinking about recommending Priscilla because I have no doubt she's going to get an Academy nomination for, for that role. Now who wins is always a bit of a crapshoot, but uh, I'm usually pretty good at spotting a nomination performance and she nailed it, which kind of sucks because I was hoping to get to work with her at some point before everyone discovered her. And here she is uh, making one of the biggest films of the year. Uh, Sophia Ford Coppola um, or Sophia Coppola. I don't know if she's got a Ford in there. Um, Yeah, but instead, I'm going to go with another Dakota Johnson movie. Um, And this one is called Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Oh, I don't think I've recommended this, please. No, haha. All right. So Cha-Cha Real Smooth. I think it's still playing on Apple TV. And it's Dakota Johnson and this other, I forgot his name. He's It's like his first time writing and directing and acting. And he nails it. This guy... Uh, it's it's full of vulnerability and charm. Uh, the first like five or 10 minutes, it takes a minute to kind of get used to this character. But once it settles in, it's really good. Uh, it's full of just humor. And uh, yeah, I loved it. And Dakota Johnson is on fire. I think her, her, her acting has been just completely underrated. Uh, thanks to some of the projects she picks, like 50 Shades probably uh, didn't help like sell her talent. Not that I've really watched those films. Maybe they're like incredible works of art or something, but she is amazing. Um, and getting there to see just a completely different type of character uh, is very rewarding. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend Cha Cha Real Smooth. Slide to the awesome. left. 
okay <laughs> what, what, what are we gonna do uh now todd oh man still thinking I'm sorry still thinking okay i'm still thinking vamp uh everyone no look, no, no look, i got it look, look i got to it the right okay <laughs> i got it well let's stick with jeff bridges just because we've been talking about him a lot i'm gonna recommend crazy heart i remember this mm-hmm. film back in uh, uh in 2009 2010 and just loving it it's, it's a great cast just a beautiful film amazing performance by him i feel like he's just always been kind of the same age version of himself i'm not sure so he looked kind of rough back then anyway uh, as well and that was 15 years ago now so yeah crazy heart well done stay tuned for it next week we are going to be covering another new film Uh, it's been nice getting out of the house and going watching films and uh, covering new stuff really has and this week we will be looking at the iron claw uh it's got a lot of heavy hitters in there um jeremy allen white from the bear It'll be fun to see him play a different character as well as, oh my God, what's my man's name? Um, I can't believe I'm blanking. Zac Efron also headlining. Yeah. So stay tuned for that and go watch a movie. Now, I don't know when we'll actually be covering that. Right now, this is the 17th. Next Sunday, we record on Sundays normally. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Then the following Sunday is uh, New Year's Eve. And so TBD, if we take a couple weeks off or just find an odd day to record, uh, maybe a combination of both where we, we miss a week, couple weeks and then also just make it happen. But stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note if you want us to cover something um, and the kind of things you find interesting. We do have requests lined up, uh, so stay tuned for that. We haven't forgotten. Um, we'll, we're getting to it in the new year. And so, yeah, if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash bad times at the El Royale. And yes, that will be tr- tricky to spell all out and without any spaces. <laughs> uh, and our, t- our quote of the day today is from Aristotle from Poetics. A well-constructed plot, therefore, must neither begin nor end at haphazard. Want to explain? Yeah. So the there's a bigger context. The The bigger quote is, it's, it's word salad to some degree is how it feels. Like, a beginning is that which does not itself follow anything by causal necessity, but after which something naturally is or comes to be. He's basically saying a beginning has no other beginning. <laughs> like, the, nothing comes before the beginning, uh, which is kind of tautological and end on the contrary is that which itself naturally follows some other thing either by necessity or as a rule but has nothing following it and all he's saying there is uh the beginning is where you start the end follows all the things that happened before (laughs) and then nothing follows after right tautological it's like these are self-defining concepts a middle is that which follows something as some other thing follows it right? The middle is in the middle. (laughs) Something happens before and something happens after. That's what the middle is. A well-constructed plot, therefore, must neither begin nor end at haphazard, but conform to these principles. And so he's basically saying, what you start needs to feel like a beginning. It needs to take place and set up everything that's going to follow. And wherever you end needs to tie in everything that preceded it. That's all he's saying. And the reason I think I, I, I chose this quote was, there was so much happening at the beginning of this thing that felt completely untethered. And by the time we get to the end, I don't know that it felt cohesive to me. Like it didn't feel like 
everything that preceded it really led up to what happened at the end. It felt very because I said so. Yeah, exactly. It felt a bit haphazard to me. Not to say that it is, and I'm sure there's some layers here. Maybe this is another love letter in the same way that Cabin was a love letter to horror. Maybe this is a love letter to, I don't know, Psycho and other mishmash films where people kind of come together in an unexpected setting, right? Like identity to me is a great example of a, uh, a hotel movie or a motel movie. Yeah. But for me on the outside looking in, I'm like, I would have liked a bit more cohesion about why all these characters are coming together in a way that makes it feel inevitable. And this is my only ling- lingering issue is none of this felt inevitable once we got to the end. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Oh, beautiful. Awesome. Anytime you can drag in Aristotle, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, we don't get any better than that. All right, let's end it with there. Uh, Well, I want to thank Hamish for joining us and and US for getting him on. Uh, I could, I think we should invite him on more. Let's just do, let's just do like, you know, like a month of Hamish films where. Like whatever uh, he's worked on, that's what we're going to cover next. I'm totally down for that kind of thing. Talk to that guy forever. But thank you, Hamish, for joining us. Uh, make sure you check out his IMDb. Uh, we will link that in the show notes. And uh, make sure that you subscribe, review us. It all helps a lot. Share us with your friends. If there's a film you'd like to see us pick apart, share it with us. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do it one day. But until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.